In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 427 of our ongoing exploration of the immersive cosmos joining us this week is designer Jaden andrea most recently the art director of gather and now back to being freelance who's one of my favorite people to talk about art immersive and otherwise with Think of this as an episode of eavesdropping on a conversation between friends as we talk Neotropolis, gather, installation art, and wax philosophical for a bit. It's a very old school episode of No Pro this week. Before we get into it, a few reminders and an announcement. Last week, we told you about the pre-sale for Corinne Wick's casting in New York City at Gymnopedi, which was live for our Patreon backers last weekend. This show is now on sale for all, and the ticket is so hot, they're adding shows. Now, before casting hits, Patchwork Adventures has arranged the whole slate of experiences on the weekend of March 2nd in New York City, and packages are still available this $400 package includes Patchwork's own Order of the Golden Scribe Initiation Tea, Shadow Traffic's Competitive Winter Picnicking Awards Ceremony, Mixer and Surprises at the Lower Case, The Great Gotham Challenge's Terminal Time Trial, Roaring Twenties Death by Bathtub Gin by Broadway Murder Mysteries, and The Tiger's Bride by Theater Uzume. For another $60, buyers can also get Linked Dance Theater's 10th anniversary intimate show for one winner's walk to add to the weekend. Links for both are in the show notes. Now, I got something to tell you about in LA. As some of you already know, the LA Immersive Invitational, which is produced by our good friends and partners at After Hours Theater Company, and and yeah, we're part of this process too. Uh, it is the very event where casting was incubated back in 2019. It's returning this April. After WOW, not immediately after, but a bit after WOW, which is in San Diego <laughs> this year, the Big Without Walls Festival. Uh, next week, no pro backers are going to get to be able to get in on the pre-sale for the Sunday showcase of the LA Immersive Invitational. If you don't remember how the Invitational works, it's a 48-hour film festival style format where we have, uh, this time we're inviting eight teams uh, to the location. They've got 48 hours to put together a show and we run it on Sunday and then uh, they take the shows and they do whatever they want with them. Maybe they put them in a closet and never bring them back out. Maybe they take them all around the country. <laughs> Both have happened. Uh, the, the, the tickets though, for the Sunday showcase, which is where the public gets to come in. It is exceptionally limited, around 100 in total for the two primary runs and less than 30 for the pre-sales, uh, for, for the, excuse me, for the previews, uh, because we, we reserve some for, you know, folks to, you know, bring people in. Uh, we're going to be rolling more out about the Invitational, including who's being invited, over the coming weeks and the short version and we've, we've got that figured out so that's not like oh no we just we've got a plan to roll it out here uh the short version is if you're an immersive fan in la 
you don't want to miss the chance to catch lightning in a bottle. Uh, it's a really, really special event. Uh, not just uh, for the folks making everything where it's, it's awesome, but also just so much fun. People have so much fun checking out this work. Uh, backers, keep an eye on the Patreon because you're going to get that chance before everybody else. Speaking of this week, we'd like to thank Stephen Hammond and Lydia for becoming new backers, Jason Moore for bumping his pledge, and Elena Doe for going annual. This March, we'll be on the march to get our paid membership numbers up, and as part of that, we'll be inviting our paid backers to the live Emmys Award presentation, ha, surprise announcement, that will take place on March 14th. Yes, uh, we're bringing the Emmys back, we're going after the Oscars because <laughs> life's been a mess lately. Um, and uh, more on that in the Patreon next week as well, including how voting for the Emmys is going to work this year. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about that after. This is a long episode. I'm not going to talk about that at the end. We'll talk next week about that. Uh, but how, how voting is going to work uh, to be part of all of it, all of it, the, the pre-sale for the Invitational, to, to get in on the Emmys action, all of this. Uh, head on over to patreon.com slash no proscenium for the hookup. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, Kurt Collins, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Leckard LeCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And hey, uh, if you want to get this audience paying attention to you, uh, hit me up at no at nopersidium.com. We have ways. Joining us on the show this week is designer Jaden Andrea, most recently the art director of Gather, the virtual gathering spot for remote teams that was home to more than a few interactive experiences during the height of the pandemic, and who has done installation work at Lightning in a Bottle, Neotropolis, and Burning Man. I should also say, for disclosure purposes, that Jaden has at various points in time been a sustaining backer of the show, but more importantly, is someone I count as a friend friend. Jaden, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Noah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this this will ultimately probably turn into something kind of like one of the phone conversations we have when one or the other of us is driving a long distance, because uh, that's a thing we do. Uh, but I wanted, uh, and, and and I know our intent, at least my original intent here, was that we'd be waxing philosophical uh, about art. But I actually want to start with something you did last year for Funsies, uh, something that uh, our own Anthony Robinson got to be a part of. Uh, and that's this whole memory thing you did at Neotropolis last year. But I suppose before we do that, we have to explain what Neotropolis is. So uh, what is Neotropolis and what were you doing out there? Sure, absolutely. Neotropolis um, is is run by the same folks that started and continue to run Wasteland Weekend, which is a sort of... Old old style Burning Man uh, festival. Um, it's a little more gritty than Burning Man has become. Burning Man used to be, you know, hardly any rules. You know, you might die. Uh, pretty gritty, and um, it's been a bit less so that as as the population that attends Burning Man has grown and grown over the, like, the last decades. And Wasteland Weekend has kind of been this um, this a whole like stake out there where people who want that kind of like gritty feeling um, go and, and kind of live a more Mad Max, like diesel punk fantasy. 
And two years ago, they the the organizing group decided to make a similar festival in a cyberpunk dystopic world. So Neotropolis is still a pretty fresh young festival. We're like figuring out what the lore is still. It's a five-day, fully immersive science fiction in the desert festival where there's a, a theme zone where you must be in costume. It's got to be like a real fully immersive world. And if you're an attendee, you're a participant. So you were an attendee, which, as you said, made you a participant. What was it that you brought out there? What was it, What was the thing that you were doing? Right. So you you mentioned this memory thing. That's actually Anthony's personal contribution to our faction. So I didn't have anything to do with this like memory project um, where, but he, it, it, that's, so that, let me, let me explain that um, as a faction, you can, you can become part of the, um, part of the, the cyberpunk city block. Uh, if you are bringing kind of a, 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 a consistent or not a consistent if, if you're you can be a faction in the city block of neotropolis if you have kind of uh, something that you're bringing uh, something significant a piece of art a performance a game of really strong vibe <laughs> something to that effect and so last year was the 13s uh anthony and my faction we are a friday the 13th cult and VHS speakeasy lounge. Um, our whole thing is that these VHSs are relics of the past and we treat them like they're prophet prophetic. <laughs> and we also try to capture people's essences by downloading their memory and creating save points for where they are right at that moment in the world. So that, you know, should something happen to them at, uh, will make sure that their consciousness gets rebooted into some kind of synthetic body, but only if you're a member of our cult. So um, if, if you want to make sure that you can always uh, back up to your, you know, previous save point, then, you know, join the 13s. That's kind of the, the vibe there. Y'all brought the, uh, the quick save option uh, to the festival. So, uh... oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah, no, from what I know, like Anthony did like a whole audio based thing. And then like, he basically it was, it was a one-on-one -on -one encounter that was, that was done inside the space that you had built. So like, right. how long were you working on that space? Tell us about that one. So I did something different with my cyberpunk speakeasy uh, environment. And that was that I lived inside of a room in Portland, Oregon, which started off as a blank slate and I built the installation around me knowing that I was going to break it down and bring it to Neotropolis. So I, um, I had a bed set up in it and I lived in it and I was working for gather at the time still. And so I did my remote work there. And then anytime I wasn't working, I, I was creating this installation all around me and like living in it. And I was really trying to get into the headspace of this like cyberpunk dystopia being our reality. So, so what 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 physical kinds of objects were in that room you were building? So you've mentioned like the, the VHS tapes were a part of it. So like, mm -hmm. you know, what's what what are the elements that are going into the aesthetic here? What was the build? Yeah. Okay. Speaking as someone who got started with more like historic environments, like vintage, like I'm trying to make a 1890s, 1930s Art Deco, or like you know like World War II era, or like whatever 
making something that's supposed to be from the future was really fun because the objects that made up the installation were either things from the past or present that had a futuristic vibe. So I was the filter for deciding what I think a futuristic vibe is or things that I personally fabricated. Um, and those two things together um, make a an idea of what I think the future might be like. So there was some clean mid-century stuff. Um, I think that like something that looks like it used to be metallic and shiny and chrome with some rust and deterioration and denting and scarred up, like being scarred up and dirty. Um, the, I was looking for stuff like that, all kinds of antique malls or on the side of the road or, um, or I was dirtying things up myself. And I also set up a 3D printer um, and I was printing stuff and it was, uh, it was a Delta 3D printer, which like moves in a different kind of way than most 3D printers. It like has a, it has this like head that moves on, on three belts and it kind of like move, it, it moves itself around using the belts as opposed to being on like linear rails. So it has mm. a kind of weird, ro like awesome robotic, different style of like, you know, 3D printing <laughs> to it. So I like the, I like the, the look of that, but it was also very functional. Like I lived in the room, um, the, you know, the, the couch was this like bright orange uh, woven, like kidney bean shaped couch with a back that looked kind of futuristic, like something that would have stood out even, you know, when it was, it was probably made in the eighties, but kind of had this like sixties sort of like mod vibe to it. Oh, that's but I could see kind of like something that was like something that is old, mm -hmm. but like was trying to reach back to a previous era. So like these, these eras, like talking to each other, something manufactured in one era, reaching back, but all at the same time looking forward. Cause the mod stuff was also trying to be futuristic. Exactly. Oh, retro futurism. Oh. I didn't want it to yeah. be a retro futurist space, but I, I, I have a real soft spot for retro futurism anyway. So I let, I let myself like, just select some stuff that was retro future. And, and I really liked the, the fact that I had to construct an, an image of the future using like basically things from the past or things that I, that I created myself. Very funny. <laughs> so this was not the first time you did like an installation piece at a festival, I guess, you know, what have you learned over the years about making installations for things like Neotropolis and Burning Man and, and, and Lightning in a Bottle? Wow. Well, I think that when it comes to working at festivals, you really have to let go of a, a huge amount of, um, you know, personal ownership or ego over something. So I, I would say that coming together in a group with a lot of ideas and having those ideas be like malleable and like change, change based on what other people want it to be and making it really collaborative. That's, that's what it needs to be when you're working um, in a large group, you know, like for festivals or just in companies that are, have many people working on a set or whatever. So I would say that's the biggest, you know, lesson overall that I learned is like, even if I have a really strong idea, I like make concept art, I like have a, you know, some fantasy of what the perfect version of the thing would look like if I had all the money and time and <laughs> in the world, the, um, the fact is that you can come with all those fun ideas, but everything's going to change and it's going to be, you know, you're going to contribute your part of it and other people are going to contribute their part of it too, to make 
something even better than what you could do alone. What's been what's been some of the the work in that mode in the festival mode that you're you're happiest with how it turned out? Mm, well, two summers ago, uh, I, I I worked with um, this guy named Wes who has been part of the Lightning in a Bottle and like some other festival uh, installation work for a long time, and I think that. My my favorite recent project in that kind of vein it was with him because he embodied that that whole idea of just having really strong ideas about what the story we're telling is, but then once people are there on the ground making their thing, um, it just he was just so enthusiastic and and he really let people take their inspiration and run with it and contribute to his you know overall vision of what it, sh- what it was supposed to be. And and that summer it was. Um, Bark Kitten, which was our jab, I guess, at Meow Wolf. Love Meow Wolf. Love you guys. Um, so we were Bark Kitten at Lightning in a Bottle, and we were trying to make a main street. And so we actually had a number of sets that were trying to evoke different time periods and types of stores. We also had a VHS store. We had a travel, um, travel agency and a broken down, like, furniture repair store and a theater with a huge marquee how well, um, a lot of stuff how how big you said main street like 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 it was a, a main street block? well like a no city, a city block a or strip. not a whole block but like a like a like a main street uh, facades and and i'm impressed by how cheaply it was able to to be done but that's partly because um wes and a couple other folks who were on the on the team work uh, work in, in Southern California where there's like, you know, a lot of facades are made for, for film and television that end up just being thrown out or repurposed. And so you can get, I can't remember the name of the, they, we acquired or he acquired a lot of these like facade pieces. And so for really cheap, we just repurposed them because he had a place to store them ahead of lightning in a bottle. So we repainted them and changed them and, you know, added, added ceilings and recut certain elements of these facades, but a lot of them were pre-built for, you know, film and television productions. So we've talked a a bit about some of the physical installation stuff you've, you've worked on and, and and been a part of, uh, you got a job at gather during, during the the heart of the pandemic, uh, and, and wound up as art director by the time your tenure there was done. Um, what applied from making physical installations to making, and, and I'll take a step here to describing gather real quick. Cause gather was kind of this like 16 bit era video game interface for like video conferencing and, and team co-working. And there were quite a number of people who did interactive kind of immersive theater e type stuff and murder mystery stuff inside that uh, th- that interface and you got started as building like kind of like one-off you know environments for it and then got like absorbed into the company itself uh, and and ultimately art director but this this modality though is like going from doing IRL installations and like when we first met like that was your focus was like doing in-person installation work and art and then you translate it all into these like flat digital spaces like how how much does it translate like making virtual spaces 
particularly like non 3D virtual spaces, how, how much is there is there a is there a relationship between the two crafts? Well, the way that I looked at it was that I had um, I had to, I had the ability to create on a two dimensional plane any <laughs> any environment that I wanted without having to spend any money on <laughs> props and fabrication and materials. I could just use pixels. Um, and I have a traditional uh, arts background. So the the drawing aspect of it, like making all of the backgrounds and the pixel art um, was, it was pretty easy to apply myself to, but coming from the point of view of an environment designer was really fun because it felt freeing. It was like, Oh, I want to make like a environment that it that looks like it's inside of a big birthday cake. <laughs> I I you know, I I could just draw it and and people would be experiencing it like walking around it cuz that's the way that gather worked. It was a proximity chat or it is a proximity chat platform so you can explore the virtual spaces that you're in, you know, using the aerial keys and moving your little character around. So um, I, I could really do set design and prop making through pixel art. And, and uh, at first, before I, I got involved as a full-time employee at Gather, I was working with um, smaller you know, theater productions that were going virtual during the pandemic. Like there was Dragon Theater. I think they're in Bay Area, they were Bay Area based. And they had some really fun ideas where we were able to do things that like you can't do in real life, like shrink people down to like, to like four inches tall and have them walk around the inside of a, of a um, refrigerator, you know, interacting with like giant food and stuff like that. Like that's like something that could take, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to make in real life. Let's try to make someone feel really small, but, 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 you know, virtually you can just do it, which is just amazing. I guess what I'm trying to say is it, there was nothing that we could do about about in-person immersive theater and entertainment being unsafe at that time. So moving virtual was the only thing that could really be done. And a lot of theater companies moved there. And I actually found out about Gather because of um, meeting Terrence LeClaire at the Spring Fling on Discord. And it was his birthday. And he was like, I'm having a birthday party in Gather. And basically from that day forward... I started making environments and sharing about them on Twitter. And, and one of the spaces that I made, I made a couple, I made one for myself called Nostalgia Purgatory, which obviously, and then that was like a black and white, like uh, kind of weird, spooky little room. And then I made a, a kind of painterly um, campsite that was inspired by Gravity Falls because I was watching Gravity Falls that summer. And then I made another one that was a, a cafe, like a co-working cafe. Because I wanted people to, you know, come and hang out, and and there was uh, a couple of websites that you know kind of had a, a resurgence in popularity during COVID, which were like I miss my cafe or like Rainy Mood or something like that, where people could kind of like craft like an audio environment around like spaces that they used to, you know, do work or like a third place, you know, kind of soundscape and one of them was uh full of cafe sounds and i am the kind of person who likes to work in cafes sometimes too so i wanted to make a little virtual gather cafe i posted about it on twitter and uh 
Philip, the CEO of Gather, found it, and so did a Wired writer named Gretchen. She had just written a piece that was concerning Gather, and both of them showed up. And I remember that I kept the space open on my laptop just because I wanted to be virtually present somewhere. And I was laying in my bed watching the Venture Brothers, trying to waste away the hours. <laughs> and I suddenly heard voices coming from my laptop, and I ran over to my virtual cafe. And sure enough, there was Philip, um, the CEO of Gather, like behind the bar, dropping images of uh, of latte art and stuff and like role-playing barista. Um, and Gretchen was there and a couple <laughs> other really, really early Gather employees were there. Uh, so I met him and I was like, man, I would love to work for Gather. This is just such an awesome platform. And I emailed the the then art director, Mark Carpenter. And, you know, honestly, I he didn't even take a look at my resume. I just showed him the spaces that I made. And I was like, this is what I do. This is what I'm into. And he gave me a couple of art tests and I was like, here's a, an example of the kind of pixel art that I can do. And I just got into it and uh, I was hired as a, you know, their first official uh, pixel artist. Literally a case of if you build it, they will come, right? <laughs> like you, like you just like <laughs> the people who gave you a job just like wandered into the virtual cafe that you built while you were watching a cartoon. That's <laughs> that's some pretty charmed, uh, charmed action right there for to, for that chapter to, to start off with. You mentioned one of the spaces you built was Nostalgia Purgatory, and that is uh, one of your handles on Instagram uh, and is, is, is a kind of a long running project of yours. And indeed we, there's like a, a, a hidden episode of, of no pro actually kind of missing episode of no pro from a, a physical version of it that you were doing at one point, uh, that, that didn't, didn't, unfortunately didn't get to open, but, um, tell us about, tell us about the nostalgia purgatory like cycle. Uh, cause this is, this is, this is, this is the, the long running kind of background arc of your career so far. That's true. Um, I got, I really like coming up with titles to things. I think like, I think that Nostalgia Purgatory is one that I've really latched onto as a title for like, not just one, but a few pieces of mine because it, it, it really captures the subject matter that I am drawn to. Um, I got started in immersive, you know, before I kind of knew the word for it by getting into like historic reenactment. When I was a teenager, I used to go to swing dancing at downtown Disney every Friday night. And I was like probably 15, 16 years old. There were a bunch of other people in their like late teens, early twenties that were dressed like to the nines, like an accurate, like period authentic vintage. And I was like, well, I want to hang out with these guys. So um, I got really into that kind of thing. And I've always really been interested in, in telling stories that are set in the past as like a, a way to teach people about things that happened in history, but it's, but not just like a history lesson, like really like specific on the individual level. Like there was a real person named this who had this kind of life and had this drama like unfold in their life. Um, so really like, like really lesser known stories from the past that, that say something about what like living in the past felt like. So nostalgia purgatory really like is a coupling of words that feels good to me because it evokes this idea of being trapped in nostalgia um like forever and i you know i i i'm tr i try to be very wary of not painting the past with like rose tinted glasses but i i do collect a lot of antiques and i used to do a lot of like prop 
building and collecting and set dressing and stuff for like like smaller immersive theater productions and so I've amassed a collection of antiques <laughs> and it feels like sometimes I'm in nostalgia purgatory all the time um but the first time I ever used that as a title to a piece was when I was in college I was it was my senior year um in 2018 I was a sculpture student at RISD and I knew that I wanted to get into themed in, themed entertainment and I really was inspired by Sleep No More. Um, I remember I used to tell people about the concept of Sleep No More for years before I ever had the opportunity to see it in person. I was like, imagine you're stumbling upon scenes. You eavesdrop on conversations. Like I was like telling people, I was giving people the spiel and I'd never even been before because I was so like, yes, like that's the kind of entertainment I want to, I want to like live out a video game RPG in real life, you know? So I was really happy that they were doing something that kind of felt like that. Um, so that was the, the, the kind of basis for my, my senior thesis project, which I built out into a loading dock of an art gallery. <laughs> so for my senior show, uh, with all my other classmates, I had this like section in the back where I built a bunch of theater flats and, you know, did the lighting and the sound and, and I, I, I hand, hand painted, uh, you know, wallpaper patterns and charcoal uh you know used a brad nailer to put wainscoting on these theater flats and just like built this like little l-shaped thing there was a a couple of chapters of this like walkthrough experience called nostalgia purgatory and it started with your funeral so i set up chairs and the the front of the experience before you entered it was supposed to evoke like a funeral, an empty funeral parlor. <laughs> so the first thing that you see when you're in the your funeral section of Nostalgia Purgatory is a standing coffin. The you know audience would open the coffin door and close it on themselves and descend down this hallway. So they're crossing the threshold of death like intentionally. That's how I you know talked about it. Then. In the hallway, I wanted to create this kind of descent into the underground, you know, so I, I used wood reed, which is like flexible, especially when wet, this like coil of, of wood fiber. And I um, drilled into the, the hallway and like wove the wood. So it kind of felt like a, a, a root system and mm. it kind of transitioned from, you know, wood weaving web into hallway made of theater flats with like wainscoting and wallpaper and peepholes on doors. And if you look through the peepholes on the doors, then you would see a little diorama behind the peepholes that represented these like, you know, archetypes of storytelling. Um, I really, um, I really love, you know, the, the archetypes that you find in like tarot cards, for instance, because they, can be they can be related to any aspect of any um, not just anybody's life, which is why people use them as a as a tool in that way, but also uh, like traditional storytelling. Like if you lay down random cards from a tarot card deck, you can ask yourself like, what does the if this is a beginning, middle, and end of a story? Like, do I know a fairy tale that like has and, it, and I've done this with a, a friend of mine before and you can always come up with something like itsy bitsy spider or like snow white or whatever. Like if you like take a look at like three random archetypes, your brain will fill in the gaps and you can just like apply 
storytelling to it or like fantasy, you know, uh, tales, like, like human, like fables and anything, like anything, it, 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 anything that has to do with human archetypes, which is like all stories. So you can relate them. So I was trying to grab onto tarot card archetypes for these peephole dioramas so that I could just kind of talk about, you know, storytelling in a kind of nostalgic, like vague way, you know, like a, a, a room that represents the like, like nightmares or like feeling like safe and at home or like childhood or something like that. And at the end of the hallway was, was the room that I actually called nostalgia purgatory, which was full of all of these antiquated, you know, machines and glassware, like uranium glass, you know, um, stuff like that, blacklit. And uh, I, ha I have a collection of phonographs. So I had a couple of phonographs on display and I was playing uh, St. James Infirmary Blues by Cab Calloway. It was very dark and there was only like a, a red light and the, the green glow of the uranium glass. And if you turn the corner at the end of the hallway and you're in that room solidly, you see a vanity that reflects yourself. And um, my friend, Jen Valentino, who played this ethereal medium in Nostalgia Purgatory. And she would read the tarot card, you know, read the cards to every person that went through the space. They would sit down in a chair across from her and she would talk to them about their life. And she's a very gifted reader. So everybody got a personalized reading that was like pretty short so I could get people to come through. But I asked her to keep the death card up her sleeve so that she could talk about what that person, how would that person feel if this was the end, if they crossed over the threshold of death and, and they had to grapple with their unfinished business and, and what would they, what would they be disappointed by um, not being able to finish? What would their loose ends be? And, and what would they do if they were given a second chance to go and and try and finish those things that they want to do in life? So there was that kind of conversation that would happen with everybody that came through. They would have a very like solo journey exploring the space, looking at all the weird antiques and the weird dioramas and everything that I did. And then at the end, they would be presented with this like one-on-one -on -one conversation about their life and about what they would do if they were given another chance at life. Um, if this was the end, what next? And then they would leave the leave through a blue velvet curtain and go back to the art gallery with a second chance at living, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so that's that's kind of what that first nostalgia purgatory was. And I really want to um, hold on to that one and and maybe do it again one day. So I just decided to hang on to the the title. And I, I talk, I use that title a lot. I mean, I use it as my social media handle. I use it as my website URL. And and, I, and I'm certain that I'll make that piece again one day in a in a way that people can, more people can experience rather than just the just the people who happen to go to my senior show. It's I've I've gotten to see images of it because you know it's, it's on your portfolio etc and it, it is a really striking looking piece right like particularly the that the coffin as a threshold and 
and just that kind of detail right like completely sets up sets the frame for what you're going to encounter right and we talk a lot about uh you know the magic circle or crossing the threshold immersive and sort of priming people for things and that kind of attention to detail in the actual what is the portal itself right um which it's funny because like we're recording this the week that Universal announced uh, Epic Universe, which is their third gate in uh, in Orlando. Hey, look, everybody, I used I used theme park terminology. Um, <laughs> so the third gate in Orlando, and the the thing they're making a big kind of a big deal design wise out is like each of the lands is going to have this portal, right? Like you know the 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 clock you go underneath this clock tower which is a portal and you get on like their version of main street which is called celestial park and then each of the the various lands whether it's how to train your dragon or universal monsters or that book series they keep on doing stuff about uh each one's got this like uh this 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 you know semi-circle portal if you've been reading the x-men comics it looks kind of like a krakoan portal uh but but more mechanical than biomechanical and and that idea of a of a of a simple framing device of like oh you're 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 leaping off into another dimension right like gets people in a particular mode of play right um and how you invite someone in how you how you bring them across you know it's almost i don't i don't know if this works this way for you so this this is my question like i kind of feel like a good portal feels like a question right like it feels like uh an an offer to think about a particular a particular mystery a particular mode of being and mi- mystery in the big sense right like not like you know who killed arnold palmer arnold palmer's arnold not dead palmer. i don't think is he wait i don't know yeah. i don't know just i thought of a name and it came out arnold palmer i don't know why um <laughs> but this this idea of uh, maybe i'm thirsty everybody um <laughs> like like a coffin is you know is going to set you up to think about everything you're just talking about about you know what would you do or you know what what if this was the end right you know like that that physical manifestation of of the question in the form of walking through the coffin yeah i think that the threshold is is such a fun concept to explore in architecture in interior architecture in theme park design and video game design because even in even in software design um you and i were talking about how I ha- I relate this like feeling of forgetfulness when you walk into a room, you know, it's like, we started talking about the phenomenology of perception, which um, Merleau-Ponty like wrote a hundred years ago. Um, it's like this idea of uh, how when you walk into a new room, your brain just resets and you're thinking about all of the things that were important to you in that space the last time that you were in it. And how I experienced the same thing on my cell phone. I like open up a web page and I completely forget what I was opening it up for. And the same thing happens in, in physical architecture too. So I think that even the idea of the threshold can be applied to software design. Um, and I thought about that a lot with Gather too. How, how so? How do you think about that in, in terms of Gather? Well, we have permanent, virtual permanent architecture uh, visually described with like pixel art spaces. So 
if you have a virtual office that you log into Monday through Friday, it's just like walking into the real office, which is part of the reason that people who are really enthusiastic about, you know, doing their remote work with their company and gather, it's like, it feels like you're really going into the office. You, you have this art, this visual depiction of architecture that make you feel like you're there. You have a desk to sit at. And when you're sitting at your desk, you're thinking about work. And when you, you know, walk your character over to the all hands room, then you're thinking about like the things that were discussed with all hands previous. And so this like kind of feeling of, of, of spatial memory that we develop when we're, when we're going through the spaces that we inhabit in life, it applies to our, our computers and our phones as well. Like when we open up our saved tabs and we're like, oh, well, you know, I always keep my email on the far left or whatever. It's like, it becomes this like layout in our mind, like the floor yeah. plan of our home. Yeah, I've been th I've been thinking about this one a bit because I've been thinking about like Apple's you know whole framework of this is you know the spatial computing age, right? And so we're also talking the week that like the Vision Pro reviews started coming out, and I mean, look, you know that that thing is like way too expensive for like a normal person, right? You know, it's like uh, given given what it does right now, it's like it costs the same amount as a high end MacBook Pro, and if like you need a lot of compute, just go get a high end MacBook Pro at this moment. But this idea of uh, you can leave Windows in a room and then come back to it, I get very excited about the idea that I could drop my recipe apps in the kitchen and then walk over to the kitchen and my recipe apps are waiting for me like sitting like you tagged on to like a surface and i can just like scroll through i mean this is not how it's actually working right now you have to do some other stuff and like it but but to some degree you can leave windows in places which is great right it'll remember which is really cool um and, and that's that's kind of a fundamental ground of creating this sort of like virtual spatialized information tier happening oh yeah you but, know what noah there's this video game that is the like the perfect like visualization of what i think the like ideal augmented reality would like look like and it's this video game called heavy rain which came out around this like at the same time that the playstation move and like the wii and like all that kind of like oh yeah one of the move. one of the quantic dream uh an early quantic quantic dream game if memory yeah. serves yeah. You know, I'm not sure, but I do remember that, that as the main character, you when you look into your your virtual files, you like he, he it's this like awesome like like office that he conjures around him. It's like he and you can change the theme of your office too. Like maybe you want to be looking through your file cabinet at the top of a waterfall or whatever so you can change your virtual environment and then the way that he pulls files from his investigation out is he like makes he makes a, a gesture with his hand which is like you know this gestural kind of stuff is is really a, a huge way that we interact with our devices nowadays and and he he opens a file cabinet and he uses his fingers to really like file through and find what he's looking for and he pulls it up and he opens it and then he spreads them around him like 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 a curved monitor and he just spreads all the files that he wants to look at all around him and it's this awesome mix of like how would you have done that the old way by looking through a file cabinet? And how would you do that in like the fantasy futuristic way, which is like, well, I throw them up into the air and they stay exactly where it will be easy for me to read them and I don't have to touch them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's like, that's the, that's related to like the idea of, 
the art of memory and like, you know, mind palaces and memory palaces, right? <laughs> Which actually stretches back to Rome, right? Like there's there's a incredibly influential book by Francis Yates, uh, who was a, a mid-century uh, you know, art historian, scholar. Uh, her main concern was uh, uh, Giordano Bruno, uh, who was, you know, the scientist uh, during the Renaissance, one of the one of the few, one of the kind of folks who got persecuted, right, uh, for 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 doing science, and one little thread in Bruno's oeuvre is is his own um, system for memory, uh, his known mnemonic system, and that got Yeats uh, deeply interested in this this kind of hidden art form, um, which had been lost, the the Ars Memoria. And uh, so Yeats's book, The Art of Memory, hugely influential to like a, a lot of people. Uh, it took me <laughs> it took me like 13 years to get through it because it is dense and I was bouncing off of it over and over again. And sometimes I think about going back and rereading it because I think I could probably tackle it a little bit quicker now. But I also started reading it when I was like 19 or something like that. I found out about it. I was like, what? Uh, and if you've ever watched, say, Sherlock, right, like the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes show when he's like standing there and like, you know, sh- doing hand gestures and shuffling ideas around, right? Like that's the idea that he's in his memory palace. Or you see it in Alan Wake 2, which just came out, that there's a mind place uh, that the the main character goes to or one of the main character goes – actually, both main characters go to a mind place of sorts uh, and, uh, and, and arrange things on boards uh you know in in their head as it were and and that's sort of this this thing that people are are chasing right now because there's some truth you know to the idea that it's we tag ideas to spaces we tag feelings to spaces right like a city can take on a particular feeling for you based on what's happened in that city and sometimes you need to get out of that city and then come back to it and like you can see it with fresh eyes and this i always find that like whenever i'm in a new place i'm all the more ready to have new ideas or new experiences or like re-examine things simply because the spatial information coming at me is is novel it's new um and and that recontextually go for it Oh, well, I, I love talking about memory and especially as it pertains to like this kind of entertainment, like immersive entertainment industry that we're in because memory and sense are so intrinsically linked. And when it comes to the arts and entertainment, um, the sensory engagement that's involved in like experience and participation of the audience, it's like it's that that multi-sensory element of immersive art is going to create stronger triggers of memory and, and overall like a more impactful attraction since people remember what they experience more, the more senses are involved because senses work in tandem. Um, you don't just have one sensory organ like capturing the the memory and experience of just that, that one thing that that one sensory organ does. When you hear something, there's so much more to it. It's the vibrations all around you that affect like every single one of your senses. They're all leading into one another. And the more that you have that like going on in a space that your sensory memory can latch onto, the more you can remember it. 
I think that's one half of the equation that's interesting for me, that, that idea of like you can create, you can kind of wedge in there, right? Like there's these more hooks for people to latch onto as uh, to have the takeaway of what the experience was. But I also think that it becomes this invitation for people to bring more of themselves and that there's, there's more people are able to explore more ideas. People are, are, are more modes of being or, or bring more of themselves to the experience at, at the same time, because you're making these affordances, you're, you're opening up because, you know, let's say, let's say one of the hooks you're playing with is olfactory senses like smell and like, okay, we're going to pump the smell of fresh bread like into here because we want people to like, you know, associate fresh bread, the smell of fresh bread with this, you know, storyline we're doing about, I don't know, the bride of Dracula or something. I'm just thinking (laughs) for a second. Bride of Dracula is not even, is it? I can't remember. Anyway, call me. Uh, So like, you know, why would bread and Dracula? I don't know. Dracula bread and that uh, trademark, uh, no one else in 2024. Uh, But, but someone's going to come and maybe have a really strong association themselves already with that smell. And so they're going to start, they're going to start reminiscing or they're going to start bringing, you know, it's, it's, um, Oh, it's Proust. It's Proust in the Madeline, right? You know, like you're going to start doing that reverie thing. So it, it becomes, if not necessarily in this big narrative sense, right, of like building a story in a very, for in a macro, in a shared sense of it all, on an individual level, it becomes this, this moment of co-creation, right? Mm-hmm. Like the story is telling... Uh, you know, the, the installation is telling a story and the smell of fresh bread is very important to a character in there. And you walk in and the smell of fresh bread is important to you. And suddenly you have something in common at, with that character and your stories are entwined, right? right. Your story and their story are entwined. It's, it's not the, the, the effect on the audience isn't based on, on just the, the smell or, or the meaning of a smell that the, you know, the artist is putting forward their intention, but it's rather the the participant who gives it that kind of like anamnestic value that, that evokes their past with like through the present situation that they're in. Um, it's like evoking this memory that they're putting forth. So they're giving the immersive art piece like their own their own flavor of meaning based on like their life experience. But that's the same thing with all kinds of art, like all art, all art, completely all art. Oh yeah. But I think the the thing, and I think you even point to it, like in 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 like the construction of like that nostalgia purgatory capstone piece, right? Is is by opening up these these other senses, by opening up these affordances, right? Like you're creating more opportunities for people to do that exact action, right? Uh, uh, or more angles that you know, like maybe someone doesn't respond to the visual aesthetic, but they respond to the scent. Maybe they right. don't respond to, you know, this, but they respond to that, uh, you know, uh, yeah. And it brings it back to archetypes. Cause that's this like one thing that, you know, over, you know, across culture and time, like we humans, you know, tend to be able to relate to archetypes of storytelling. That's why like, you know, like, like back to tarot or like Commedia dell'arte or like something that's like really basic, like storytelling you don't have, you know, with Comedia dell'arte, I bring that up just because you didn't have to be like literate or educated to understand it. Like you don't have to be educated in what tarot cards mean for someone who understands like 
storytelling basics and like archetype basics to to make you feel like you can relate to that experience and that story. So there's like a certain like archetypal, you know, feeling to the smell of bread that like can be a baseline for everybody. Oh, like there's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of er media literacy that happens even before, you know, literal, like verbal literacy. Right. And like, that's some of what, that's some of what when we we start to talk about archetypes and and I know that like you know there's 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 all when you start going down that route and I was I was steeped in young you know when I was like early in college and 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 Campbell and everything and mm-hmm. and that's been you know complicated uh for me as as time has gone on but I am always attracted back into those modalities because there there's something about the idea of how our society kind of lays down a base layer, how some things are kind of determined by just the mechanism, what it means to be human, right? You know, like, and some of the core kind of mammalian relationships that you find yourself in, just the affordances of our bodies. And there's resonance between that. Oh, Siri, what did you, what did, what did Siri find? There was something weird. What did Siri find? Uh, nope, can't find it now. I already just missed it. Um, <laughs> sorry. I hope, I hope that here's what I found got on the table. There was people, why did no one suddenly start talking about Siri? No, wait. Uh, Can you just rewind about a sentence or so? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, um, I'm not going to cut any of this because the Siri bit is funny. <laughs> Because uh, does this all the time, like when I'm in class too. I was just like, "What are you doing, Siri?" Uh, she's such an attentive student. Uh, she's listening. <laughs> so, she's really listening. <laughs> um, so, like, when I was look, uh, I got I got turned on to Campbell, like Joseph Campbell, right? Power of Myth, mm-hmm. uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces, because of Star Wars. Shock, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and did a lot of my my you know kind of school research in in high school was you know Campbellian and Jungian I, I happen to be lucky in that my uh my English teacher uh Bruce Green hi Bruce uh doesn't listen to the show maybe oh maybe we'll tell him but I, I shout it out to him maybe he will this time uh so uh Bruce was also like really into archetypes uh, archetypes of the unconscious and like interested in Jung and, and stuff a lot of his stuff he was really interested in like Ken Kesey's kind of take on on this sort of stuff um Ken Kesey has an electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest, Ken Kesey. Um, so we, you know, I, I did a lot of reading and research. I read like all of Campbell's masks of God series, which is like a follow-up to your thousand faces, which is like very, very much in depth. And like one of the things, um, you find there, right. Is like, it's all about, you know, that there are these kind of universal human archetypes and there's, there are other very well braced up schools of thought that's kind of say like, Oh, well, that's just all, that's all bunk. Right. Like there is no universal human archetypes. There's people who reject Jung wholeheartedly and, you know, cause there's kind of a, there's a, there's a mystic ish dimension to Jung and Campbell's based a lot on, on Jungian. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also there's ways in which the archetypes or see I'm, I default to Campbell. There's ways in which you know if you look at different cultures, there is specificity and there is there are other kind of 
you know, there are other archetypes in other cultures. There are other modes of story. You know, the hero story is not the be all and end all of everything. Uh, even if Hollywood latched onto that in the mid eighties <laughs> and then every single, you know, uh, thing was like, you know, the hero cycle, the hero cycle works, right? It, it works real well. There are other modalities, but I think that the reason why the Jungian mode, the Campbellian mode of thought still has an allure and has some power and, and, and insight is that there are things about just the way, you know, humans as mammals on this planet, right? Like are constructed that we're going to tend to have certain kinds of experiences right. where, or, That's... or, or we're going to have, or we're going to not have certain kinds of experiences that others of our species are going to have. And that's going to create friction in perception, right? Someone who, you know, doesn't have the same experience of family as someone else. There becomes this, this gap, but there are these archetypes that get embedded into a culture. And some of them are very, very, very similar because of the basic mammalian functionality i just i've lost everybody i've lost myself so right i mean no i i I, th- I, th- I agree with you so i'm not a great like contra point because i also kind of lean back into young and again joseph campbell but what i what i remember most for my takeaway from hero with a thousand faces is just that his examples of stories from many different cultures across time and and and, and areas of the world you know, there are Native American stories that have plenty in common with like those really well-known, you know, European and Greco-Roman, you know, mythologies that also have a lot in common with African mythologies. And we all, and Chinese mythologies, and, you know, it's just a kind of funny coincidence that we've all got different star stories for like the celestial bodies up there, like major cultures. And there's, there's plenty that is universal, in my opinion, like the mystery of night or, or, or an elder, elder, you know, an elder's influence on, on, on a young mind and, or like an abusive parental figure, or, you know, there's like, there, there's these human experiences that, that no matter what culture you grew up in is like part of human nature, you know, to, 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 to think of monsters in the, in the darkness that you can't see and, and the comfort of, of someone um, who took care of you when you needed to be raised or, you know, when you were young, like there, there are universals that, that are the best archetypes because then they can really go across culture and across language and, and be related to no matter who the audience is. Yeah. And there, and for me, it's, this stuff becomes part of like a, a locking, uh, you know, mechanism in, in culture or, or an unlocking mechanism in culture where it's like, you know, the role, you know, the role of a mother, for an individual, the role of a mother in a society, and the different ways those express, uh, you know, you can start to see like, oh, okay, yeah, and then the role of women in a particular society, and and that things change over time and change, you know, in in different parts of the world, uh, it becomes one tool by which we're able to kind of orient ourselves and examine the the stories that we have in front of us the 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 way we can understand the the lives of others the way we can understand the ways in which we are 
similar and the ways which are different, the ways in which, most importantly, we kind of co-create the consensus reality, reality around us, um, which I don't mean just in like, I don't mean like necessarily in like a mystical way, but in kind of a political way, um, because that's that the, the things that we cling to, that we understand to be the truths of the way the world works, that then become the ways in which we operate and what we expect out of the sort of the rules of the society. Right. Again, the coffee just ran out. Uh, I'm <laughs> I warned everyone uh, that, that uh, philosophical waxing would happen, and lo and behold, uh, <laughs> here we are. Here um, we are. Well, d- I think that the the audience is the main character, and like, what role, like you, if you're playing yourself in in this like 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 immersive sort of you know experience that you might be like you know going through as an audience member or as a designer or whatever. Like the the role of the audience is so different now that we like are trying to put a name to this like immersive storytelling it's like it's being remember it's being recalled that that the participant is the listener you know around the fireplace like we're hearing these stories and maybe you're being told a a spooky a, a spooky fairy tale so that you don't you know wander into the woods at night if you're a you know 16th century child in the middle of nowhere or something but like if you're um if you're just listening to the story, you know, at bedtime, you're you're not playing a character in it, except that you're you're you have the theater in your mind that's that's playing it out. But with um with this like you know immersive entertainment, whether we're talking about like video games or VR or you know like RPG styles or or theme parks where you're like going through a dark ride or going on foot through something or sleep no more <laughs> where you're wearing a mask, you know, like it's it's doing something novel, you know, you are really a character in there. You're affecting things or you can at least feel like you are. Well, I also, I also think particularly if we think about, you know, narrative agency being afforded to the audience, I always think about bedtime stories from like a parent to a child, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and some parents are, you know, the kind of stories they'll tell, they'll be very reactive to a kid's suggestions, right? You know, like, well, well, what happened? What's in the closet, right? You know, <laughs> and the parent, like, it, in so many ways, like, that, that's that's the original one-on-one D&D session, right? You know, <laughs> like, you know, just improvising stories for a kid at bedtime and the kid is directing, you know, is the director and the parent is the writer, you know, and performer kind of going in real time. And in so many ways that, that little relationship is for me, I always think of that being like kind of the er form of all of this interactive storytelling, right? Is it ultimately it boils down into, but what's over there, right? But why? Right. But why? And then you either go like, shut up, kid. This is my story. It's like, congratulations. We're in auteur land. Or you're like, okay, well, um, well, see, his parents were murdered in an alley because the Earth story is, of course, Batman's. Um, <laughs> so, I had to find a discount somewhere. Uh, it's, it's usually a joke. Uh, Jaden. Um, Thank you for uh, a lovely almost hour of of oh, wow. chatting Ready? about 
about all the work you've been up to and about art and philosophy, which, like I said, I knew we'd get to sooner or later. I can't do you remember what was it cracked. Now we've been at this for like 25 minutes. I don't remember what cracked us into it, but it was going to happen sooner or later. Um, you're, you're in freelance mode right now, if memory serves. So if, if folks want to want to find more about your work and your portfolio and, 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 and reach out, uh, where can they find you? Sure thing. Well, I, I have a, you know, dedicated Instagram for my immersive work and that involves all that festival work and personal projects and what I'm working on now. Uh, that's nostalgia purgatory on Instagram. And I have a portfolio website at jadenandrea.com and also nostalgia purgatory.com. It'll, you know, probably take you to the same place. Maybe under construction as we are speaking, but hopefully by the time the episode comes out, you know, <laughs> it'll be all buckled up. So, uh, and then you can email me at jadenandrea at gmail.com too. All right. Well, thank you so much. And as always, a joy to get a chance to, to talk this stuff with you. It's always a joy. Thank you, Noah. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank Jaden for being our guest on the show this week. Check the show notes to check out Jaden's portfolio. And yeah, that's the show this week. You had like an hour, <laughs> an hour of us. So uh, Jacob, are you happy? Are you happy now, Jacob? Now that, now that the football season's over and you know, your Sundays aren't taken up by watching certain teams and getting just so frustrated. Anyway, now he's like, you're trolling me on the end of, no, I'm not. We know both of our teams lost. I don't even watch football. Jacob Patterson of Think Tank Gallery, uh, dear friend, who I haven't talked to in a few weeks because of football. No, uh, probably because of football, because of the playoffs. And he's like, you know, deep, deep in it. Um, I think he's ha- he's he's happy right now from from what happened. I'm happy from what happened uh, last weekend, even though like I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, I was born during born during yes my true birth uh revised reality i came up during uh the montana and rice and young and rice uh dynasty years of the um of the 49ers bill walsh george seifert right like i can say names all day dwight clark um (laughs) very deep deep those were not actually not even very deep frighteningly like really close in my brain right uh but I don't watch football anymore because uh, it makes me sad uh, because uh, seeing how all the hits always put turned uh, my hero's brains into pudding. So there's that. But I, but it's hard coded into me. So if you ever if you're ever out with me on a Sunday and we're somewhere and there's a football game on, particularly if there's a 49ers game on, please forgive me if I zone out and focus entirely on the television. I I literally can't help it. I am drawn to it like like T-Rexes to moving objects. Um the 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 strategy, the the the, the playmaking I love it so, but I also know the cost of it is horrendous. So I just try to stay away from it. Although I also have a habit of watching the scores uh by refreshing Google. So, you know, Look, we all do what we need to do to get through this life. Um, uh, I make this show. You listen to it. (laughs) 
what is wrong with us? Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the, the coffee, the coffee, uh, of course, from Yes Please is working. Um, shout out, Tony. Uh, yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, I said I wouldn't uh, talk too much about the Emmys, um, almost because I got to write this stuff down. Uh, I, I really wish that all I had to do was speak into this microphone and then everything was... <laughs> All the problems of my life would go away, but they don't. They just multiply. Maybe the longer I'm on the mic. Um, we, uh, we've we done the Emmys a few times now. Uh, em- Emmys being the No Persinium Awards. And we've done them differently every time because we're we're trying to figure out, you know, well, what's, what's good, what's right, what's equitable. Also, we started them, like a few things <laughs> got started uh, during, during the high pandemic. And uh, that... Uh, that meant almost all the work was remote. And now uh, there's very little remote work and almost all the work is regional. So how how the hell do you do regional awards? Um, well, uh, there's a couple of ways we can, we can do them. Uh, and indeed, probably over the long haul of things, uh, maybe we'll dust off some of the old Leia playbook. Um, once upon a time when we were organizing uh, the, the 501c6 uh, and trying to create like, you know, a community group, uh, a nonprofit that way before the pandemic, before the dark times, um, we were planning chapter houses all over uh, the states and even, you know, in, in uh, you know, working together with like, you know, uh, friends like the Immersive Experience Network in, in London and, and, and doing things that way um, and creating a a community controlled uh, entity that was you know, fighting for, for everybody and, and would probably wind up doing some award stuff because that's the low hanging fruit. And as, as silly as it is, as frustrating as it is, as internal politicking as it gets, nothing motivates people quite like an award. It's, um, it's just the nature of humans. Uh, so, uh, but then, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, uh, Leia got mothballed, um, and might, might get resurrected, uh, as a sub project one day. Um, there's just things about like the financial structure. Anyway, God, and now I'm blathering. I'm like, Oh, looking to Noah's fractured brain. The Emmys. We've done them a few times. Uh, we've done them where, just the no pro editors uh the the review crew controls what's going on we've done it where there was uh big uh lots of voting on categories from anyone and everyone uh pure popularity contest this year we think we have a format that um that is one step closer to what the final form will be I already have ideas of what the next format's going to be because of what we're doing this time, but I don't want to try to implement it. Also, it's going to take like, you know, six months worth of work to make that proper. That format is... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I will talk about the format next week because I want to write these things down. Uh, but nevertheless, the heart of it is there will be one award that is open to anyone who wants to vote on it. A big reader award. But the vast majority of the regional and category-based awards are going to be 
the voting will be done by the backers of No Proscenium. Um, that's going to be who gets to vote. So um, if you want to get in on that action, uh, more details on that coming in the next week. Voting is going to be open for a couple of weeks. Uh, it'll be a relatively fast turnaround. And uh, yeah, more soon. This is a very long episode now. I'll talk to you next week. Let's do the ending bit. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar of the Podcast. Special thanks to Shavano Lachlan for voicing our intro. This podcast is made by yours truly. Until next time. Wait, that's not how that goes. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs> <laughs>